Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Annabelle Crabb is one of Australia's most popular broadcasters. She is a Walkley award-winning journalist who has covered politics in Australia for decades. She has also made a significant contribution to the discussion of gender equality in Australia through a vast array of projects such as books and television shows. Her most recent work, Ms Represented, of which she was the creator and presenter, is a documentary looking at Australian politics from the female perspective, spanning the last 100 years since women were elected to the parliament. Annabelle, I must say, after decades of being your interviewee, there is a distinct pleasure in being able to reverse roles and ask you questions. Welcome to my podcast, or should I be saying, well, hello, which is, of course, the title of your latest book. Well, you might be looking forward to this. I'm terrified, frankly. So <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable about being asked questions, but I'm sure you'll be gentle. <laughs> no guarantees given, no guarantees. <laughs> well, hello is based on the stories told in your very popular podcast, Chat 10, Looks 3, which you co-host with your friend and media colleague, Lee Sales. As someone who's already had so many different media projects, what was the inspiration to start podcasting? And have you found a freedom in it that's not available in other mediums? Oh, I love it. And the thing that actually distinguishes the podcast that I do with Lee from a lot of my other kind of media work, I suppose, is that it hardly ever feels like work. You know, it feels like I walk out of recording a podcast with Lee feeling restored and enthused and it doesn't feel like I've just sort of flogged myself to create a piece of content and I think the secret of it is that we just I suppose experience the very greatest thing about friendship with a friend that you respect and whose mind you admire which is that the opportunity to sit down and have a chin wag about everything you've been reading or thinking about or watching actually helps restore your resources and I think that maybe that's what people like about the podcast as well that sometimes it reminds them of catching up with a buddy yeah it's it's a very very pleasurable part of my life I must say sounds terrific fun (laughs) but what hasn't been so much fun is life this year can you tell me what it's been like for you as someone who's constantly on the move you know your life pre-covid would have been planes trains automobiles engagements events television promotion books as well as the podcasts. How have you found the separation of lockdown? It's interesting, you know, there have been good things about it and there have been 
unusual things. I mean, I've been confined to my house with my partner, who's also working full time from home. And my three kids, one of whom's in high school and two of whom are in primary school, all doing their education remotely. And I tell you what, I've learned a few very crunchy lessons out of the last year or two. And one of them is teachers are amazing and I can't do their job. (laughs) (laughs) Just the way that teachers have responded to what is just an unbelievably difficult and challenging change in circumstances, going from teaching live to teaching online. I'm full of respect at the amount of resilience that they've shown and the amount of care that they give to students who they know are missing out or, you know, like it's just, it's been quite extraordinary to see. Look, it is weird to have a quite busy traveling life suddenly constrained to four walls. The good thing is that it's just been really good to have the time with my kids. And I kind of ended lockdown feeling simultaneously relieved that it was over, but also that I just never wanted to do anything ever again. (laughs) It was like this sort of feeling of creeping ennui, which I think is probably about just being exhausted from all the anxiety and uncertainty and wondering where the world's going to and all of that. So yeah, it's a funny reflective place, I think. It does take more energy out of you when you get back out there. I remember I've been here in London for a while now and I was here as lockdown ended and I remember one big day where I went to the office and then I was going straight out to a thing after work Mm. and so I had to take with me just, you know, a thing to change into and all the rest of it. And I reckon I would have walked out and walked back five times uh, (laughs) because I'd forgotten stuff and I was thinking to myself, how did I ever used to do this? But I used to do it day after day after day after day, go to an office for a day and then go out immediately afterwards. But it just seemed like a hurdle too high to jump after lockdown. And it's it's the personal admin as well. I've forgotten how to get dressed, you know, like what? (laughs) even just the stupid, I mean, and God, you know all about this, just that sort of ridiculous sort of routine of what am I wearing and what am I going to later on and, you know, are these shoes going to be comfortable? all that sort of stuff. I don't know, getting back into it, you know, out of tracksuit pants and back into that is makes you remember what a ridiculous palaver it is. I mean, I don't mean to trivialise, it's obviously not the most huge challenge in life, but just just having your brain back to all of those levels of activity and planning your day and working out how you're going to get from A to B and God, I mean, the kids have all started doing their activities again and I just think how do we manage all of this god just not quite fit is the issue (laughs) but more physically fit you've been running yeah look I loathe running I really don't like physical exercise of any kind I'm a deeply lazy person I'd rather be on the sofa with a book and a plate of cheese and a glass of wine (laughs) but I did actually start running a bit in lockdown partly because it was the only way to get half an hour on my own I think particularly as I get older, I realise that, yeah, actually physical exercise is a really important part of mental health. So I'm not really a runner. It's more of a sort of like a begrudging shuffle is what I do around my streets. And I do run into a lot of podcast listeners. And I I did um, do a podcast with Lee where I talked about getting into running. And so now I will often run into Chat 10 looks three listeners on my shuffling way and they tease me a little bit because I don't look like a pro. (laughs) That'll come. That'll come. 
But of course, when the history of this period is written of 2021, it'll focus on COVID, but it will also include the national debate we've been having on violence against women, which was started by strong young women such as Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. From your vantage point, how do you see that conversation evolving? And do you think it will have an impact on the federal election, which we know is due pretty soon, really, uh, by end of May 2022? I'll answer that question in two parts. See how I'm answering like a politician? I know how to do this. <laughs> I'll just slightly adjust your question and answer the one that I wanted to answer. No, I won't do that. First of all, about those young women, I think that is, for me, one of the most exciting developments of the last few years. And just to see the number of young women now who take and they promote and they exude a different and I think extremely welcome approach to sexual assaults, which is, it's not like we were taught this, but I think women of earlier generations really struggled to get past that idea that the shame attached to them in some way. I mean, they intellectually understood that it shouldn't. But I think because for generations, women were encouraged to you know, feel themselves a bit at fault in some way or, you know, did I invite that behaviour? Did I behave in a certain way? There was just this sort of pervasive lesson that you should somehow internalise the shame of, whether it was sort of workplace harassment or sexual harassment or sexual assault. And that's all to do with, you know, how those crimes were reported, how those how they were dealt with in, in the legal system and so on. But the most exhilarating thing, I think, that you see coming from those young women and, you know, looking at young women like Chanel Contos, who actually listed and compiled experiences of young women showing us how broad and shocking that experience is, even among secondary school girls, they were really grasping something so important and powerful, which is the shame of that situation does not attach to me, it attaches to the person who's the perpetrator of the behaviour. And once we settle on that as a principle. I think it's highly liberating of women. And I just think I couldn't be more respectful of and impressed by those young women. And I think that that is a a major change. And I think it's very influential. When you ask about the forthcoming election, I think there is a tumble dryer full of issues that have affected women over the last couple of years because women are more likely to be casual workers in the areas where jobs were lost, more likely to lose paid work, but also more likely to pick up more unpaid work. And of course, women in Australia are disproportionately represented in the doing of domestic unpaid work and so on. But I mean, if you look at who was taking on all that extra domestic work around remote learning and looking after children and juggling work at the same time. Women are doing more of that than men. I think that and the um, resurgence of the gender pay gap and everything that we are seeing about how women are treated, you know, in the parliament, which is a big conversation that really burst forth in March, kind of sort of adds up to this sort of frustration and anger and that's what you saw on the streets earlier this year when so many women turned out to march and I think also there is a frustration around planning for this nation's future and about this sort of extraordinary more than a decade long arm wrestle we've been in on climate policy I think that it adds up to a frustration that 
I think will be noticed in the forthcoming election in some way. I don't know how. I wonder if it will be reflected in support for third-party female candidates who have been more and more successful in um, inner-city seats over the last few elections. I don't know exactly what it's going to translate into, but there is definitely a depth of emotion and feeling and frustration and a sense of exhaustion out there. What do you reckon? (laughs) This is the benefit of getting to ask the questions. (laughs) I agree with you that there is a sense of joined up frustration and it welled up because of the courage of Brittany and that's what took people out onto the streets but it's joined in the minds of women with everything else that continues to present in their lives which is gendered and unfair and they're seeing it and they know it. So I do think it will have some form of political expression. As you might have seen, I've called for our country to try and get itself into the top 10 rankings of gender equality by 2030, which given we're languishing down at 50 in New Zealand's number four, should get us moving, but will also prove to us that it's doable. If New Zealand can do it, we can do it. (laughs) Taking you back again, to Parliament House, obviously Brittany's revelations were about Parliament. Mm. You've worked in that building for many years as a journalist. So how gendered do you think being a journalist in the Canberra Press Gallery is? Obviously, Brittany and others have spoken about being a political staffer. Many female MPs have spoken. What about journalists? The press gallery in Parliament House is just a journalistic environment unlike any other in Australia, I reckon. It's the only place you go to as a journalist and you are not only under the same roof as all the people on whom you're reporting. So during sitting weeks, you're running into politicians of every stripe and you see the public servants of estimates and all that sort of thing. Like You're in the middle of it. And actually, that's not similar to many other democracies, comparable democracies worldwide. And I'd, you know, I'd love to read a PhD thesis on what that co-accommodation does for the culture. I think it's a long and interesting conversation on which I'm sure you would have views too. But you're also right next to all of your competitors. I mean, apart from sports reporters that are sitting next to each other, you know, in the box at the ashes or whatever, it's really the only place where you go to work and you have to stare down the person who beat you on the story and then, you know, you get to crow over somebody else that you beat to another story or whatever. It's kind of collegiate in some ways and then very tooth and claw in other ways. And I remember when I arrived in the press gallery, which was budget day 1999, my main thought was actually, it wasn't looking around my my surroundings and kind of counting up how many men and women there were. I was just terrified, right? Like I was just, I'm walking into an environment where I don't know anything. It was the ultimate imposter syndrome, although I really was an imposter because I didn't know anything. So all I worried about was how will I ever understand this place? How will I ever get stories? I don't know anyone. No one will return my calls and so on. So it's just sort of terror when you start out, really, because it's such a competitive environment and you're at a massive disadvantage. I have got this picture up from August 2002 
it was during that period where John Howard was prime minister and everybody was sort of waiting for Peter Costello to make his move. And then he announced as treasurer that he was going to be conducting a bus tour of central Queensland. And it was clearly appreciated as an image softening, kind of showing a more human side. So, of course, we all piled onto these buses to follow Peter Costello around central Queensland and we went to stations with him and, you know, places where they made leather whips and all these sorts of things. And, it was, you know, it was all highly revelatory about him and so on. But there was a photo that we got taken on that tour and it's an old outback dunny. And in the picture, I'm looking at it now, I'm in this outback dunny and I'm kind of waving and then there's a whole queue of about 25 guys and the gag is they're waiting for the dunny. But I look at it and I think, I can't remember being the only woman on that trip, but maybe I was. Isn't that interesting? Because I look at that now and I think that is not what the gallery looks like anymore. But it makes me think, wow, in 2002, really, there were heaps more blokes than women. And that has changed. And I also think that the arrival and flourishing of powerful women in the press gallery has changed the rules about what is news and what isn't news. Because I tell you what, the story about Brittany Higgins, I can absolutely envision a time where she might have told a journalist that story and been told that's not really a yarn. Because, I mean, I was certainly brought up in a culture of ensuring that you did not unnecessarily report on the private lives of politicians and staffers and so on. And I still respect that about Australian politics. Like I think we do not delve into the private lives of public figures unless there is a conflict. And I've always thought that that is a good and right thing to do. But also in the last year or two, the question arises, well, who does that rule protect? And often historically that has protected powerful dudes who get up to this and that and so on. But I do think that the existence of senior women making calls in the gallery are what drove that story and certainly Samantha Maiden breaking that story and pursuing it and being backed in by senior women journalists I think has made a real difference and I think there is now a differing understanding of the culture of Parliament House and the things that it has sort of allowed to occur that now in hindsight seem old-fashioned at the most benign and actively dreadful at worst. And there are women politicians and ex-politicians that are contributing to this really strongly. I mean, obviously we talked to heaps of women in Ms. Represented, but I mean, even people like Kate Ellis, you know, writing in her book about the culture of parliament and the things that were said about her that were said essentially because she was a young single woman and the way that young single women experience life in parliament compared to older women, married women, and so on. This stuff is absolutely pernicious, but it's only really just being discussed and given appropriate weight now, which is, I guess, further indication that the human species never stops learning about itself, right? It's incredible to think that there could have been a time when Brittany's story would not have been viewed as reportable news. That's uh, something to really think about. 
You've also talked in the past about the role of alcohol on parliamentary culture, and I'm interested in your insights in that. I mean, it's been discussed a lot during the course of this year as one of the threads of Parliament as a workplace, but that whining and dining is one of the tools that journalists use to build relationships and get stories. So how do you reflect on that culture, the going out oh. Wednesday night culture? Yeah, well, it's complicated because I've absolutely used that as a tool. I've even bought you the odd beer on occasion, I think. <laughs> I remember once having dinner with a bunch of your colleagues and um, deliberately, like, you know, just ordering more wine and I would occasionally go to the loo and write things down on my leg because they were just telling such interesting stories, which is, I'm sure, a very dodgy way of going about business. But it is a good way of getting info out of people when you don't have a notebook in your hand and you're you know, having a few beers and talking off the record, people will tell you stuff. It's a really useful technique. And I would never be moralising about alcohol. You know, I'm a pretty solid drinker, so I would never frown at anybody else who loves a beer. But um, there is a really interesting relationship, I think, between alcohol and women in parliament. The suffrage movement in Australia was born with very strong links to the women's temperance movement. And in fact, the early debates about whether women should have the vote or be in parliament were driven in some part by this sort of moralistic sense that women would be move into the parliament and clean the place up a bit and make it a bit less licentious, or that women would, you know, use their political power in the vote to ban alcohol and to shut pubs and none of the blokes wanted that. Oddly, there's still an element of that in today's debate because I think there's a lot of women saying that Parliament would be a place that worked better if it had less of a boozy culture. Karen Andrews, the industry minister, came out really clearly earlier this year and talked about that and said that she had made the decision not to socialise in and around Parliament because she felt there was bad behaviour and bad things happening and she didn't want to be a part of it. But she also reflected on the booze culture as being inherently exclusive of women, you know, that there was a culture of men getting together and boozing in a way that she didn't feel extended or included women. And it certainly doesn't, it's not super comfortable for a teetotaler or somebody whose religious beliefs involve avoiding alcohol. So my controversial suggestion about Parliament that I made when I wrote The Wife Drought actually was it would be fascinating to see what would happen if we conducted at least some of the parliamentary sessions remotely. After the last couple of years, we all know how to use Zoom. I think it would have a really interesting impact on the culture of parliament. If people were all obliged to participate in parliament whilst physically in their electorates, it would mean that the primary pressure on them to decide this way or that way on any particular initiative would be coming from the people in their electorate rather than the people in their faction or the people in their subgrouping in the Liberal Party or, or whatever. I think it would be a really interesting thing to see. And I also think you'd get a huge uptick in participation from women because that long distance travelling and obligation to be away from your family 20 plus weeks a year still works differently for female parents from the way it works for male parents. 
Yeah, I think one of the big challenges for workplaces generally, including Parliament, out of this era will be to work out how to take the best of this technology with us and leave, obviously, the worst of it behind, the constant use of the technology and all the separation that that brings. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, Zoom is a transactional medium. So for deep collaboration, I think people have to be in a room together. But certainly there's going to be power in the mix, you know, of having home working as well as getting together collaboration working and how that can work for Parliament House, I think, is a fascinating thing to still come. And parliamentary committees are another thing, of course. It's not just going to Parliament House for sittings that takes people on planes. I mean, any backbenchers, particularly senators, because there's a huge committee load in the Senate, spend much of the non-parliamentary time also away from home with all of the stresses and strains that brings. Yeah, that's for sure. And, um, and you know, there's a huge value in that too, because parliamentarians that are on committees spend their time going to other people's spaces and meeting people in their own areas and hearing about their experiences, which is a super useful thing for politicians to do. I think my idea about sending the parliament remote would have me absolutely lynched by my press gallery colleagues anyway. <laughs> just like you get the best tips when you run into somebody, you know, in the corridor who says, oh my God, this has just happened. And then they tell you something that they probably shouldn't. And in fact, Phil Curry, before he became a reformed smoker, always said that he got his best stories having a fag in the um, courtyard because you'd run into people from all the parties that were having a sneaky cigarette and might just quickly tell you something while you're puffing away. It was never really enough to make me take up smoking full time, but it's food for thought. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think uh, good stories are a net positive versus cigarettes and lung cancer. I'm just waiting for my call from Nicola Roxon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Nicola Roxon, health minister, cracking down on that smoking and doing a fantastic job. You were speaking then about the history of women in politics and the association with the temperance movement. And of course, this year you launched Ms. Represented, which is a four-part series that talks about all things involving women in parliament, how women actually first got elected to the parliament, the different way women are treated and experienced politics, what's changed because women have been elected. The research you did for all of this was incredible. Can you give us an insight into what you found the most shocking in that research? I mean, you came to this project knowing a lot about Parliament and about gender equality, but are there things that really, really made you go, heavens, that's just amazing? Look, I think the most shocking thing really, and I knew a little bit about this but not how bad it was, was looking at what happened in 1902 with the Franchise Act. Because, I mean, like most people are taught that Australia was the first country in the world to fully enfranchise women. I mean, we did beat the Kiwis on that. They got there first on giving women the vote. But Australia was the first country to legislate a national bill providing that women would have both the vote and the right to run for parliament. I knew that that had not applied to Indigenous women and men, that they were not included in that Franchise Act. But what I didn't know was the extent to which it was the inclusion of women in the franchise that actually hastened the exclusion of Indigenous Australians. And that is really clear 
from the debate that happened in the Franchise Act, the first version of the legislation that was introduced was an absolutely simple universal suffrage motion. And then it was actually a representative from WA, I think, who moved an amendment that would exclude Indigenous Australians and several other ethnic groups. And his argument was, and this is just shocking, and the language that he used was shocking, but his argument was that if we are to extend the vote to our beautiful, lovely wives and daughters, then we shouldn't pollute it by also including these people. And he went on to talk about particularly Indigenous women, First Nations women, in the most shocking of ways. And so I found that the thought that that had been hanging around all this time in the Hansard, just this traducing of First Nations people was just extraordinary. And we had to think of a way to convey that information in the program. I wanted the horror of the language to be conveyed but I felt uncomfortable reading it myself. And so actually I'm very grateful to Linda Burney who was extremely helpful to discuss this issue with and she in the end said that she wanted to read out the language. I think it was almost like an act of repossessing the language to name it, to recognise it and for people to understand that that had been said and that that decision had been made by our very, very young parliament at that time. And of course, Linda herself was born not all that long ago, but at a time where, you know, her father was not automatically able to enrol to vote. So that is the part that, you know, I thought was really the most shocking. But the more broad reflections from women about their time in parliament, I thought, was interesting for the patterns that just recurred over and over again. And the most stunning one, I think, I mean, I asked all of you that I interviewed, what's it like when you're the only woman in the meeting? You know, whether it's cabinet and a bunch of our interviewees were the only woman in cabinet for a, a period of time. I just was shocked by the identical way in which so many of you answered that question, talking about this phenomenon where, but by the time we got to about the fifth interview and everybody from, you know, Bronwyn Bishop to Sarah Hanson Young had sort of explained it in the same terms, this weird phenomenon where when you're in a meeting and there's only men apart from you and that thing where you make a suggestion and nobody seems to hear and you think, oh, maybe that was a really dotted idea. And then a little bit later, a guy will make effectively the same suggestion and everybody will hear and it's a great suggestion and let's do that, Jeff, and all of that. I mean, it ended up all of those responses being kind of cut together into a sequence, which I think is probably among the most memorable in the series. And it, it's just the director, Stamatia Marupas, sliced them together so brilliantly that it's an incredibly powerful demonstration that they can't all be making it up, right? <laughs> it's not like there was just Labor women saying it or just Liberal women or just Greens women or whatever. It's just such a universal experience. And what I really hoped from that series was that it would be interesting to men watching it, men in politics who might not be aware that that stuff's going on. Because one thing that I think is true of politics and it's true of lots of other professional endeavours, 
men and women sometimes occupy the same landscape, but they'll experience it in different ways. So women will go through this landscape and they'll see there'll be obstacles or hurdles or maybe, I don't know, some bits that are easier. Either way, it's different from the landscape that the man sees when he walks into work in the morning. And I think that thing about being heard is one of them. It absolutely is. And I think that there would be men in politics who would think, what do you mean you say something in a meeting and people don't hear? You're audible. What do you mean? And the other thing is actually about ambition because one thing that I really noticed a lot of women actively controlling for in their daily lives in politics is how to be ambitious without seeming too ambitious because ambition is in politics as in many other pursuits actively rewarded in men it's thought to be a a good attribute but in women it's sort of suspicious and so that is another part of the landscape that is different for women I think they have to work out how to just you know negotiate around that. Absolutely. And uh, those things uh, always pass the head nodding test. I give a lot of speeches about women and leadership associated with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and the book on women and leadership that I wrote. And when you look across the audience, there are always women nodding when you refer to women's ideas not being heard and the dangers of appearing ambitious. And of course, a lot of research on all of this now too. I'm going to now take you back in time. I'm going to take you back to your childhood, growing up in (laughs) South Australia. Uh, You grew up in the small country town of Two Wells, famous, of course, because there was a lion park nearby. It's approximately an hour out of Adelaide. And you grew up on a farm with your parents and two brothers. What were those formative years like for little Annabelle? Uh, (laughs) And when was the first moment that you said to yourself, girls get treated differently to boys and it isn't fair. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the lion park because I tell people that and people don't really believe me, but there really was a lion park. And I, on a sort of still night, you could hear the lions roaring. So like that was sort of part of my childhood, you know, the distant but audible sound of apex predators. (laughs) (laughs) But I had two brothers and, you know, I got around in their hand-me-downs and, you know, did farm work exactly like them and we all worked on the farm. So I didn't notice a big gender difference in my own life apart from the fact that I was always terribly dressed because I was always just in tracksuit pants and velour hoodies that were hand-me-downs from my big brother. (laughs) I do remember having that realisation at one point. But I think I just was a big reader mainly. Like that's the main thing I remember. I didn't, you know, I used to envy kids who lived in the town because they could like ride their bikes to each other's houses and hang out and everything. But I couldn't get to my friends' houses unless I could talk one of my parents into giving me a lift. So I think I did a lot of playing outside, a lot of building cubbies and forts and playing with air rifles and having fun in the dump and all those sort of completely dangerous things that kids aren't mainly allowed to do anymore. But I did read a lot, like I just read inordinate amounts. And I think that's where I started probably thinking about this stuff was maybe at a slightly too young age reading, you know, I remember reading The Female Eunuch and I didn't understand all of it, but I kind of was really riveted by the ideas and arguments within it. And I think that was probably my most memorable early interaction with persuasive writing, you know, polemical writing. And I was absolutely fascinated just by that idea of unpacking the things you could see in front of you. And, and you know, a room of one's own is probably 
the most influential book that I have read on gender, I think, mainly because it was so striking because of the elegance of the writing, but also this idea that quite mundane things could have a huge effect on something as lofty as creative expression and that sometimes, you know, your ability to prosper or not as an artist or as an intellectual force could be heavily influenced by something as mundane as, you know, do I have enough to eat or do I have somewhere to work or is it quiet, you know? So I think that that, you know, reading definitely is what set me off down a path of gender awareness, I guess. Choosing this, and I know when you started out on a career in journalism, you probably thought that the journalistic world would be a more stable one and that the journey would be to ever more senior positions on newspapers, Mm. whereas it's been instead really a stamping out of different ways of taking your message to audiences. So Mm. the political reporting, the podcasting, the making of TV, Mm. uh, all of that, the writing of books. Would you recommend that kind of career to young women? I get asked a lot, would I recommend politics to young women? Of course I would. But would you recommend the life you've chosen? Can you see that for this upcoming generation or will it be different for them? Well, it'll be different for them because when I started as a journalist, there was a much narrower field of entry to it, I suppose. Like you could either go to journalism school and then graduate and get a job at a newspaper or you could do a cadetship, which is what I did. I did a cadetship, but I I did it a weird way around. Like cadetships used to be taken on by school leavers, but I had a law degree by the time I started my cadetship at the advertiser. So I was sort of an elderly cadet. And I think that that's actually increasingly what happens people when they do traineeships and if they can find them on on newspapers they do so after they've got a degree I think there's been an explosion of journalism courses and graduates from journalism courses so it's much less predictable that you'll go out of one of those and straight onto a job at a newspaper which are hard to find because newspapers have been laying people off hand over fist in the last few years but there's also been this massive explosion of of content providers, right? Like, I mean, if you are good at journalism, there are all sorts of different outlets where you can find work. And there's also a huge demand for people who can communicate clearly in sort of quasi-journalistic roles or journalistic roles in sort of trade publications and so on. Heavens, you've got the AFL creating its own media room and, you know, employing its own journalists, which I find deeply terrifying. I mean, the next thing you know, you'll have a sort of Parliament House kind of (laughs) in-house reporting service where the politicians have to approve everything that's written. Seriously, no, don't ever do that. That can't happen. That's bad. The central part of it that I fell in love with straight away and still am not bored by and that fill me with enthusiasm for the work, even when the platforms change, even when the business model falls apart, even when it becomes a much more precarious environment than it was when I first started. Just to be curious and to be allowed to ask questions and to observe, it's the most absorbing work that I can imagine. I would never, ever, in retrospect, consider a different career. Um, People often ask me if I'd be interested in going into politics, and I really wouldn't because I don't think that I'm naturally decisive enough. I am always 
sort of thinking, oh, I can see the other side of that argument. I would find it hard to commit myself to a party, I think. There's a certain discipline involved in that. You have to sort of hand over a certain amount of baggage at the door and you have to be able to compromise and accept disappointment in some areas in order to get your vision realised in others. And I think, I think I'd struggle with all of that. But I do have just an endless fascination for the democratic process and the way change happens. I love to watch it. Sometimes it happens sort of really slowly and agonisedly, and then sometimes it happens all in a rush. And often at the moment you see circumstances where the population moves and then the political leadership moves behind it, you know. That's quite an extraordinary thing to see too. And as our population gets better at talking to itself and is allowed to talk to itself through social media and so on, it has real consequences, not all of them good, for our democratic process. And I'm full of curiosity and a little bit of dread as to how that changes the way we make decisions as a group of people. I'm going to come now to the final questions that I always ask podcast guests. And one of them for you is a fact about the media. And it really, I think, relates to your last answer and the possibility for further change. Mm. Your fact is of the 12 major daily newspapers in Australia, half now have women as editors. And that's a big, big change from the past. I did not know that it was that high. That's amazing because I remember very clearly that when I started in the press gallery, there really had only been one woman who'd edited a major national daily and that was Michelle Grattan who had edited the Canberra Times. Yeah, that's a great thing to reflect on because that's not all that long ago and it's one of the things that made me write my book The Wife Drought actually because I was looking over many years at the way men and women were in parliament and the way they lived their lives and the decisions that they made. And I noticed that things were different for female parents in parliament. And I also noticed that of all of the smart young men and women that I started out in journalism with, the smart young men were much more likely to go on to senior editorial roles or being the editor of a newspaper. And in fact, there were a few where I thought, really? But then hardly any of the women that I started with ended up in those jobs and partly it was because they weren't able to manage family and work on a newspaper which just has the worst hours. I mean, like, honest, newspapers and toddlers have exactly the same cycles of emotional neediness. They all get really (laughs) sort of, you know, whiny at about (laughs) 6pm. people have tantrums but I think that's obviously changing and that is just a superb superb thing because the reason for having diverse people in jobs isn't you know just to be nice or to be you know because it's the right thing to do in terms of gender equity it's just because diverse groups of people make better decisions and I think one of the most heartening developments of the last decade for me is that there's research that supports that suspicion that we've always had and that's a very exciting to see that thinking move into the mainstream. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to face? Oh, online, a daylight second. I've been super lucky in my career where I've, you know, I mean, I really, I haven't consciously been ever really 
discriminated against because of my gender. I don't think I've had heaps of opportunities. I've worked with great bosses, male and female. I do get a bit sick of people putting me down sometimes because I had a you know show where I did cooking because like I have a lot of people who will say to me on social media something like get back into the kitchen or you're an airhead that sort of thing I'm like no I'm not I'm quite a clever person actually I just happen to be smart enough to have incorporated one of my hobbies into my career have you done that buster (laughs) but also yeah I mean god online and I, I don't even get anywhere near the worst of it I there's colleagues of mine at the ABC that get much worse stuff but what frightens me online and particularly you know on Twitter where you get people who are you know nowhere near their real names or anything just the ease with which a line of criticism of you about your job or something that you've written or whatever which is entirely fair enough you know every journalist should be prepared to be criticized and you know even if it stings listen to it and respond to it if you if you want to but what shocks me is the speed with which it turns into you're a slut or just the sexualized nature of it just absolutely just stuns me sometimes and I think that what you see online often is people trying to injure or damage you know someone that they are frustrated with or are criticizing and the fact that when people are trying to damage or catch the attention of or hurt a female person, the speed with which they repair to some sort of sexualized threat or shaming is just, it's stunning. It really is. If you had all the power in the world, what would you change for women? If you could just change one thing, what would it be? Oh, easy. I would absolutely enforce a global directive that all girls are educated at least up to the age of 16. That's what I would do if I could just wave a wand. Jeez, it would fix some stuff. It would fix. I mean, we know because there's a lot of research into this now that educating girls is actually one of the most powerful things you can do to defray climate change. It's certainly a great way to assist with population stability. And if when I waved my wand, I could also make the Taliban disappear, I would like that to happen too. I've just recently caught up with a group of young women who were evacuated from Kabul only a matter of weeks ago. And to see those young women, I mean, the youngest one I met was 14. And this group had been sort of hiding out in a house literally with the Taliban beating on the door. For that generation of young women in Afghanistan to go from a future that included education and work and freedom and aspiration to have that switch heartbeat to hiding in a house with some seriously scary guys who want to forcibly marry you off to somebody or other like that's just an unbelievable piece of backsliding and a reminder to us all even as we celebrate the advances that we all make how quickly it can be lost now, you are well known as a lover of Virginia Woolf and you've I spoken am. about that and as a lover of cooking and you've spoken about that as well. <laughs> so I couldn't go past this quote from A Room of One's Own for you. Virginia says, one cannot think well, love well, sleep well if one has not dined well. The lamp in the spine does not light on beef and prunes. Annabelle says... <laughs> My lamp lights without beef and prunes because I don't eat meat. But, I mean, prunes I would definitely take. Look, to be honest, I would eat anything that Virginia Woolf told me to eat because she had 
just the most extraordinary capacity for pellucid and beautiful prose. One thing I will point out about Virginia, though, is that she sort of had a wife, actually. Her husband, Leonard, was her advisor, her editor, made sure she took her pills, made sure she got fed, cooked for her, cleaned, an extraordinary man. And some of the great writers throughout history were only able to do what they could because they had spouses that made their lives livable and made their creative brains free. And so, yeah, shout out to all the wives, including the great Leonard Wolfe. Annabelle, thank you so much for what has been an intriguing uh, conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. Great to get to ask you some questions for a change. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for asking me. You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with King's Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.